Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. That is the first three verses and verse 13 from Psalm 41, which along with Psalm 52 are the psalms appointed for today, Monday, September the 8th, 2021. Well, happy Labor Day to you. Hope you're having a, a great one today, and I hope you're able to, to have time off and, and enjoy this day. It's a, uh, Hopefully it's a wonderful day for you, and so blessed um, that, that I pray that God would bless your labors, whatever they may be, and that he would bless those things and multiply them and make you fruitful in every single way. That's my prayer for all those who labor. <clears throat> so the, we're continuing our look at the kings of Israel, and today we're in 1 Kings 13, verses 1 to 10. We're also in uh, the, the beginning, the epistle to the Philippians, uh, chapter 1, the first 11 verses, and then we're getting to the end of Towards the end of Mark's gospel, we're in uh, Mark 15, verses 40 to 47, about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So thanks for being with me today. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm John Green, and I'm your host. Uh, we're, today, we're, we're going to look at, so you remember that Jeroboam had, had ascended to the throne of his father, and he had become a, um, a wicked man. Right from the beginning, right? I mean, the people came to him and asked him to make their load lighter, and they would serve him all the days of their life and and make it lighter than his father Solomon had made it because Solomon had, had much forced labor for public works projects. And so Jeroboam now, in the beginning of this passage from First Kings, Behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel, which is the first place where the Lord was worshipped. The house of God is Bethel. So Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. The man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord. So this prophet is speaking not to Jeroboam, who shouldn't have been in Bethel to start with. He should have been in Jerusalem. (coughs) He's speaking to the altar. O altar, O altar, thus says the Lord. Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you. And human bones shall be burned on you. So there's one who's coming, this Josiah, who will come later, and he will reverse all the, the quote, reforms that Jeroboam and, and the others have put in place. And those reforms would be setting up multiple places for worship in the high places and neglecting the house of God in Jerusalem. And so what he said is, this Josiah is going to come and he is going to destroy the priests who conduct worship in these places. And he gave a sign the same day saying, this is the sign the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And so Jeroboam is there before the altar making offerings. And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar saying, seize him. And his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up so that he could not draw it back to himself, sort of like the, the leprous, uh, leprosy that, that was put on to Miriam when she and uh, her brother Aaron came and confronted their brother 
um, Moses about who should be the leader of the people of Israel. And so here he reaches out his hand, and it says that it's dried up, Jeroboam's, so that he could not draw it back to himself. And the altar also was torn down, and the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king said to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. Remember with, with Miriam, because of that leprosy, that she had to stay outside of the camp for a period of time because the Lord said, No, she sinned. And so there's going to be a price for that sin. And so the man of God entreat here, though, the man of God entreats the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him. It became as it was before. And the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I'll give you a reward. And the man of God said to the king, If you give me half your house, I won't go in with you, and I will not eat bread or drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall neither eat bread nor drink water nor return by the way you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way that he came to Bethel. That sounds a little bit to me a very similar story to the Magi, right? I mean, they come in and, and Herod... Uh, questions them and then says, give them my regards and then come back and tell me some things. And so the wise men go, but they're warned in a dream not to return by the way they came. And so they return to their home without going back to Herod. And it's the same situation here. There's no way you could trust Jeroboam that that what he wants literally is for... um, Come in, refresh yourself, and I'll give you a reward. And you can see this man of God looking at him going, not on your life not a chance in the world that that's going to happen. And so he goes, and he goes back to another way other than the way that he came to Bethel because he could have laid a trap for him along the way. And so so this man has truly had a word from the Lord, and, and the word of the Lord is judgment against the house of Jeroboam, and that there will come one named jo, uh, Josiah who will come in and tear down these high places and restore the proper worship of the people of Israel. And so that is to come still in this day. And so they, they've been spreading themselves out among other gods at this point. And so you know, remember, that's exactly what, what um, Solomon had done to appease his wives. He had constructed altars for them and, and they could then worship in those places, but Solomon joined them in that worship, and, and as the leader goes, so goes the people. I mean, it's absolutely true. In a church or wherever, whatever the, whoever the leader is and whatever the, you, the, the congregation typically won't ascend spiritually beyond that level of its leader, and, and if they begin to, they'll leave. They'll go somewhere else. That's just exactly the way it is. In the book of Mark, uh, in the gospel, we've got... <clears throat> These women, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and Salome, are there looking on from a distance as Jesus is being crucified. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And it's the sort of overlooked reality of the ministry. We're told in multiple places that they provided the financial resources for the ministry. And here we're told that many women who came with them to Jerusalem. And so Jesus's work had attracted this following. And we know about Mary and Martha. And so we know about some of these others as well. And so his ministry had had swept up in it, these many women. And, and 
I'll tell you the truth. The, the, the thing that I've found consistently to be true is, is that frequently the women or the spiritual leaders of the church, whether they're recognized as such or not, the church that we served in in Pauly's Island had been just sort of a sleepy little church in a sleepy little town. It had been a typical Episcopal church, you know, attending to the needs of the wealthy and all that. Uh, at one point, it had been the plantation owner's church. It was the first church established there and and on and on it went, and it just sort of moved along and in that sleepy little place. And then suddenly the place began to grow. But at the same time, there were a group of women in that church, and they had just had a scandalous exit of a pastor there. And though this group of women began to pray every day. And they prayed every day for, for a man to come and lead this church who, who would be God's man and who would be spirit-filled. That, in other words, that they would they would appreciate the gifts of the Spirit, that they would believe in the in the current operation of the gifts of the Spirit, and and the Lord blessed them and sent them in uh, to that place. And, and along the way, he he believed in those gifts, but along the way, he came into contact with John Wimber's ministry, and and everything changed. Everything changed at the church, and everything changed. Uh, all over the world, in some ways, for Anglicanism during during his tenure as leader of that church, God did an extraordinary thing. He he absolutely reached the entire world from that place, and we became known as a place of healing and a house of prayer, a place of prayer. And then from there, uh, the Reformation in the the Episcopal Church, really act outside the Episcopal Church, because there was no hope within. And so it, it, the, these faithful women there, though, were the ones responsible for that. And we see that again here, those who are watching from a distance, this group of women who had come down or up to Jerusalem when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath. You've got to get every all your food that you're going to cook, all that kind of stuff has to be taken care of on the day of the preparation, because you're not allowed to work at all on the Sabbath, and this being a special Sabbath because it's right after the Passover. So what happens is is that, that as even, after evening had come, that's what it says, so the, the, the day of preparation um, was there, and Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, it was permiss- it is permissible to do the, what's necessary for the dead, so, so this uh, this action by Joseph of Arimathea is perfectly in keeping with keeping pass uh, keeping the Sabbath, but at the same time, it's it's shocking that he would have would have gone forward and, and said, "I'll take responsibility for this body of one who was who is accursed according to Jewish law because he was he died on a tree, which is the uh, cursed is he who who is hanged on a tree." And so, Joseph Varimathea, we're, we're told, is a respected member of the council, the Sanhedrin, and then he though is looking for the kingdom of God. He he took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate was surprised that he should have already died. The, the, the soldiers would have ensured that Jesus died before the evening of Passover, because of the, before the evening of the Sabbath, I mean, because that, that would be the proper thing to do, and that's exactly what the Jews would want him to do. And so that's the reason they pierced his side and that they broke the legs of the two other men who had been on their crosses. So Pilate then summons the centurion and asks whether Jesus was already dead. 
And when he learned from the centurion that he was already dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And so what Mark is telling us here is something I've used multiple times before, and that is he's not only merely dead, he's really most sincerely dead, which is from the Wizard of Oz. And so he, he has verified that it was, and they didn't give the body to Joseph here. He gave the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. So they followed him because of the ablutions that they were going to, to be engaged in. As soon as it was possible for them to do that, they prepared the spices and all that to go on the body so, so that it wouldn't smell. So... So they know where it is. They know where they're going to go the next morning. In this uh, passage from Philippians, Paul begins with uh, introduction. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now, Paul writes this from Rome where he's in prison. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Remember the Philippian church was started with Lydia, who was the purple dealer from Thyatira, because they, they were unable to find a synagogue in Philippi, and so they had to go down to the river where they supposed there would be a place of prayer, which would mostly be women again. And so these these women then became the core of the church. And then when Paul and Silas were put into prison there, the Philippian jailer then along with his household, becomes converted. And so he would have been one of the elders in the church to whom Paul has addressed this epistle. He said, I thank God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. I mean, Paul, the Philippians is the sort of the epistle of joy, as, as it's sometimes known. Because Paul continues from prison to speak of this word joy and rejoicing, he says, he, he says, I, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. In other words, you're persevering in the proclamation of the gospel in every single way. He said, and I'm sure of this, that we, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace. It's an extraordinary thing for Paul to reach out to this largely Gentile group of people and say that, that, that we are one, we are brothers, because we both have received grace. Paul has, has already clearly just laid aside everything that he thought was righteousness prior to this and said that that stuff was all filthy rags. And so now he's speaking to these brothers and sisters in Philippi by saying that, that you're partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. For God's my witness for how I, for how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. I love you in this... In Christ Jesus, I love you exactly the way he does, and I yearn to be with you again. And it's a powerful thing to be able to say that, but if you've ever experienced great fellowship in a great church, then you'll understand that yearning to be with the brothers and sisters, the saints in the in the church. Um, there, there are certain places in my life where, where it's just a great joy to go back and visit with those saints that I've known and I've ministered to and I've ministered with. And that's one of the things that makes Pauly's Island such a special place in my life is because I spent so much time with so many people there, and, and they are truly saints, 
some of those wonderful people I've ever met in my life, devoted to Jesus Christ. It's not that they were wonderful and good people. They were that, certainly. But their partnership in the gospel and their encouragement for me as a young man, not a young man necessarily, but but a person young in ministry, let's say, as soon as I had finished seminary, they encouraged me and supported me and blessed me in remarkable ways. And we had this wonderful relationship one with another where, where I was, like Paul, not above them in any shape, form, or fashion. I, I was a partner with them, and it's a joy to be with them as brothers and sisters. And he says, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of Christ, that you persevere in the truth is really what Paul's saying, what you approve what is excellent, those things that are true, that you may bless those things that are excellent, that are pure. And, and so in that way, then, then you might be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And the, the reason that's important is because we, we spend too much time dealing with the things that are not excellent, Right, so most of the world is fallen, busted, and broken, and it's not excellent. But we, at some levels, pretend that it is, because we we hold those those mourning thoughts of oh my gosh, the world really is a horrible place, and we are horrible for the world. We hold those thoughts in abeyance because of the joy that we get from this life. And so Paul says, though, I want you to approve what's excellent. Don't just bless and lay hands on stuff because it's not horrible he wants them to to focus on those things that are excellent and that's what he's going to give the advice he's going to give them later for how to deal with one another is to focus on those things to take your eyes off all this other stuff in the world but to delight yourself in the lord and delight yourself to the things that you see where he is filling all those things it's important for us that we do that rather than be led astray and rather to wait than waste our time on things that are far less than...